I was trying to see how long I could wait before saying it. But welcome to Point Two Law Review. I'm uh, John Brandt with the squeaky voice. You are John Brandt still today. Yeah, I am. And I'm Carson Messersmith. And we're here to talk about the Nebraska Supreme Court, Nebraska Court of Appeals decisions for the week of, help me out with dates, something to yeah, March 10th. We are going from... March 7th? Yeah, 7th to 10th. Yep. Okay, March 7th, March 10th. Um, legal world update, anything? I don't think anything huge from me. Real world update? Anything? It's almost March Madness. Congratulations. I know that's a special time in your life. It's a very special time in my life. (laughs) Is it mad for you? It it is mad. It is mad. I mean, anytime when you can have sports on all day long, Uh, multiple games at a time, mm -hmm. I I mean... It doesn't get any better. No. Multiple screens. Exactly. All the screens. Now, do you have like 12 screens, all with games, and then you stare at your phone? Yeah. Isn't that a classic? (laughs) (laughs) I think I do that too. All right. Let's start with the Nebraska Supreme Court opinions. And these are just dropped today, March 10th, 2023. We're going to start out with one from Carson, which is a doozy. It absolutely is. So we start with Chatterjee versus Chatterjee, a case uh, that is an appeal from the district court of Douglas County. Um, It's an appeal from a district court order establishing paternity over a couple of minor children to twin children. Uh, We start with a dismissal and a a vacation of that judgment. And so this all started when um, Aperba Chatterjee, who is the um, alleged Uh, father of these individuals, believed that he was the father of these two twins, filed a complaint on March 18th, 2020 to establish paternity, custody, and support of minor children. He alleged that um, this individual was pregnant with twins and that he might be the father of those twins. He, as a part of that complaint, made a motion for genetic testing of the twins, uh, which was granted, and he also made a motion to add uh, the children's alleged father, the individual who was married uh, to the woman who was pregnant, um, in his amended complaint. So he asked to have that person added to a, as a party, and um, that, that alleged father was added um, to the complaint. So the twins are born on June of, or in June of 2020. At that time, um, the uh, two individuals, Inadriel and Indra, were married. Uh, genetic testing was performed after the birth of the children on June 11th, and the results returned indicating that there was a 99.9% uh, statistical probability that a perba, so the uh, individual saying that he was the father of the children, uh, was, the, was indeed the biological father. Uh, Very shortly after this, birth certificates were issued for the children on July 6th of 2020, naming um, the two married parents, uh, Inadriel and, or naming Inadriel as the uh, father of the kids. And so then on March 21st of 2022, there was a decree of paternity, custody, and support entered by the district court. That decree found that uh, Inadriel was the children's biological mother and that Aperba was the children's biological father based on that paternity test. Uh, the court ordered joint legal and physical custody of the children, set forth a parenting plan, and vacation schedule and then made um, you know all the additional orders surrounding support and expenses and things of that nature 
There was then an appeal from that court order, essentially um, questioning what uh, whether Nebraska's paternity statutes allow for an alleged father to establish paternity over a child born to a married couple. And so here, um, the Supreme Court goes about addressing whether or not uh, there was a standing issue here and whether a perba had um, standing to question this. And so they um, agree that a perba lacked standing to challenge the legitimacy of the child born to the marriage, and therefore they end up d- dismissing this appeal. But the areas they uh, go into addressing are um, first, civil proceedings establishing paternity of children, and then civil pr- proceedings to uh, disestablish paternity. And those are uh, Nebraska Revised Statute 431411 through Nebraska Revised Statute 431411.01. And then proceedings to deestablish paternity are 431412.01. And so here the Supreme Court uh, states that, you know, Aperba is arguing that he's the alleged father um, and that he can maintain an action to establish paternity and that he doesn't need to uh, disestablish the paternity because it was never uh, legally established because he was found to be, um, at least genetically, the father prior to the issuing of the birth certificates. And so um, they, uh, they, the Supreme Court here agrees that um, Inadriel, who is the uh, married father, that his paternity was never legally established, and thus, you know, it doesn't need to be uh, disestablished by 431412, but they disagree that Aperba has standing to challenge um, this his status a, as the father. And the big issue um, that kind of comes into here is uh, what is the, de- the definition of a child uh, for purposes of these statutes? And the definition here includes that that the definition of child is a child born out of wedlock. And so under these statutes, um, the children are presumed to be legitimate because they were born um, in a uh, marriage relationship. And so they don't meet the definition of child because they were not born out of um, wedlock. And so then they, uh, the Nebraska Supreme Court goes into essentially the other case law that they have made surrounding this issue And they state that while um, there's a case called Gomez that stands for the proposition that a married woman uh, cannot attempt to establish paternity in someone other than her husband, it does not um, say whether or not a stranger to a marriage uh, can question that. And they answer that now they cannot. And so um, here a marital uh, marital status, uh, the marital status essentially is the kind of end point of the question, because you can't have a child um, for the definition of the statute if it was a child that existed in a married uh, situation because they can't be out of wedlock and therefore uh, there is no child here um, under the, the definition of the statute. And so here they hold that a perba lacks standing uh, to seek um, finding paternity and that the petition has to be dismissed because um, he cannot intervene here because these uh, children are born to a marriage and therefore um, it is presumed to be legitimate and he has uh, no standing to question that. And here, interestingly enough, and that's part of why this opinion is, um, I guess, controversial or at least uh, important, is that there is a three-person dissent uh, from Justice Funk, Justice miller Lehrman, and Justice Papik. And here they say that uh, the analysis um, 
provides a default presumption of paternity, but that that can be rebutted by clear, satisfactory, and convincing evidence, and that um, they believe that Gomez is distinguished here, and that there's nothing within the paternity statutes that don't allow um, essentially there to be standing, and that if you can provide uh, something to overcome that rebuttable presumption, that a um, father or a possible father should have the ability to overcome that and that um, you know by saying that he'd engaged in this relationship and then having the genetic testing showing that he is the father that there should be uh, the ability to overcome this rebuttable presumption of paternity and therefore um, the dissenting justices believe that uh, this should have been a case where there was standing um, and that a perba should have had the opportunity to essentially show that he uh, was the father, uh, allow the evidence in from the genetic testing, and uh, you know change the result essentially of what happened here by allowing him to have the standing to uh, challenge that. So again, a very interesting opinion if you practice anywhere in this area. It's definitely one you have to look at, and it probably is something that the legislature hopefully will address, and the Supreme Court says that both um, in the main opinion and then the dissenting justices that this is a legislative question, and so we'll see if we get any clarity on that. But right now, um, if you are a, um, a potential father in a situation like that, it looks like you do not have standing to question uh, the paternity of those children if they are born to a married relationship. Wild. Very wild. Wild stuff. Crazy outcome. Yeah. Um, so I guess it'll be in next year before there's any legislative fix if there is one, right? Yeah, I yeah. mean, uh, there's not going to be a quick remedy. Yeah. And right now, that probably is not a very good answer for the appellee in this case. Yeah. All right. Well, I have a State v. Osborne. Uh, it's a criminal matter um, regarding the chain of custody. More fallout. If you remember from last week, we had that Anna Indigma. Indigma? Indigma, I believe. Indigma, yeah. yeah. Uh, she was involved with the State Patrol and the evidence locker issues and drug trafficking that occurred a few years ago. And this is some fallout from that. A defendant here was uh, charged with position of methamphetamine with intent to distribute and the tax stamp uh, violation, which is always a fun little tag on they can put on there. Have you ever seen one of those tax stamps? No, I do know what they are, but I oh, have not seen one. I got to tell you, they're super cool. <laughs> Very neat. <laughs> I mean, they're they're cool looking there as far as stamps go. Um, in fact, um, in one of my previous employments, there was uh, an, an individual who had them uh, in their office. They collect them. They did. They collected them, <laughs> and they were a government, you know, run thing. And they had these drug stamps all over. The heroin stamp, I remember, was really cool. It was very neat. I mean, it belongs in a in a psychedelic poster on a teenager's wall. Uh, <laughs> one of those. But anyway, uh, the drug stamps. He's charged with those, and it uh, seems to create because you don't have the anandigma. Uh, you know, chain of custody issue, it seems to create kind of a missing link in the evidentiary chain. And the counsel for the defendant in this matter filed a motion in limine, objecting uh, and objected at trial after the motion in limine was uh, denied, saying, hey, if we don't have this person testify, there's no link in the chain. The trial court found that there was sufficient evidence. Basically, the underlying facts here are there's three people in a vehicle uh, they two of them had meth on their person, and then this person, uh, Mr. Osborne, was in the back seat, and then the black sock with 27 or so grams of methamphetamine fell out of the car when they got out of the car, and he didn't have any meth on his person at the stopper in the jail, 
and a review of the video showed that the sock fell out of the rear passenger side, which is where he was. Um, and so there's some evidence there that maybe he had either possession or constructive possession of it. At the hearing in the motion limine, uh, the uh, chain of custody was, was followed as best they could without uh, Ms. Indigma, and they had the lab technicians and further people from the state patrol come and testify and say that Indigma took evidence from the evidence locker but didn't alter evidence from the evidence locker, basically saying if it's there, um, it was fine. It's fine, at least from their <clears throat> investigation of uh, her activity there. So they say that the trial court said there was no evidence of tampering, and then they had a bench trial. At the bench trial, a co-defendant who uh, testified in exchange for going all the way down from possession of methamphetamine with attempt to distribute all the way down to attempted possession, so all the way down to a class one misdemeanor, co-defendant testified against the defendant here, and uh, ultimately at the bench trial he was found guilty and sentenced as an habitual offender to 10 to 30 years on each count, and it was to run concurrent. And there's a good law chunk here as far as chain of custody is concerned. Uh, if you want to go review that, there's a good discussion. No, not discussion, but there's a good law chunk of uh, what chain of custody is in Nebraska, as well as the uh, constructive possession uh, statutes, which are always interesting to try and explain to lay people and defendants. Like, well, it doesn't really matter if you weren't holding it or if you were just in the car, if you knew or otherwise that it was in there, you had constructive possession of it. So that's often people's first encounter with constructive possession. So those are good little law chunks from this case, but otherwise it was affirmed. Uh, they found enough evidence to convict Mr. Osborne. And uh, yeah, it was affirmed. No issues other than those two things that as far as I could see. Okay. The next case we come to is State versus Fernandez. This is an appeal from a conviction of theft by deception. And the main issue on appeal is uh, if a jury's determination of value in a theft case uh, must be a specific number um, rather than a range of numbers if they must determine what was actually uh, stolen to a certain amount. Uh, the relevant facts in this case were that um, Fernandez's sister was in a, in a coma uh, during that time. Um, allegedly, Fernandez made uh, multiple ATM withdrawals amounting to uh, approximately a couple thousand dollars. There was a jury trial held, um, and the relevant jury instruction on uh, the value of the stolen um, property read as follows. Uh, if you find Fernandez guilty of theft by deception, you must then decide beyond a reasonable doubt the value of the property obtained by her on or about or between uh, August 8th, 2020 and August 10th, 2020 in Lancaster County, Nebraska. Once you have determined the value, record the amount on the appropriate place on the verdict form. And so um, on appeal, the Supreme Court says that the original verdict form was not uh, in the record but that uh, both counsels seem to agree that um, it was simply a dollar sign followed by a blank space uh, where the jury was supposed to enter a number. And so uh, after the uh, trials concluded, um, the case is submitted to the jury. The jury comes back and asks, um, in written form, of course, if they um, agree to guilt but not on an amount, uh, did that have to be unanimous, the agreeing on an amount? And so here the uh, court provides a different verdict form that contained um, ranges of uh, dollar amounts but said that it still had to be unanimous. 
And uh, on the amended verdict form, the uh, jury had uh, checked the box where they found the defendant uh, guilty and then circled a range of values that was $1,500 to $4,999. The court found this to be valid, convicted Fernandez of theft by deception and sentenced her to 14 months in uh, prison. So the goofy part here is that uh, Section 28518, um, which uh, is the theft statutes, defines value as an essential element of any offense that must be proved by beyond a reasonable doubt, um, and that this applies to any prosecution for um, theft. And here the appellate counsel for Fernandez is arguing that the... Um, exact amount is required and that the jury instructions say that it should be. And interestingly enough, in the uh, comments to the jury instructions, uh, the Nebraska jury instruction 3.6, it says that it requires the jury to state in the verdict form the precise value of the property taken. The committee decision to require a specific jury statement as to value is a decision both as to what is clearly permissible under Nebraska law and to provide assistance to a judge making a restitution decision. And so um, here the Supreme Court addresses that by saying that 28.518 subsection 8 requires that intrinsic value be proved beyond a reasonable doubt as an element of the offense. And so they have to show that it has some value, but it's not necessary to prove the exact value and that the exact value is only used for grading the offense. And so here um, they say even though uh, the... Uh, district court judge didn't take the exact language from the Nebraska uh, form jury instructions. It sufficiently communicated to the jury that it must find some value. It wasn't misleading. And so they didn't find any error on the part of uh, the judge there. And then they also uh, found that because there was no restitution ordered, there was no prejudice to uh, Fernandez. And so therefore, uh, there was no issue uh, with whether or not that was going to be prejudicial or they needed the exact amount. And so uh, since there was no restitution, there's no issue there. And then um, they did say, though, that they would generally discourage the practice of amending uh, jury verdict forms during deliberations, but they also didn't find any prejudice with that. And so um, it was all affirmed. But again, kind of an interesting opinion if you have anything with theft or with jury instructions. Uh, always good to take a look at. So because restitution was ordered, it didn't matter. Because it wasn't ordered, it didn't right, matter. Right. Yeah. Um, so there's no prejudice. But maybe it would have mattered. <clears throat> but it has to do with the gradation of the offense. Yeah. Okay. So you would think it would matter. <laughs> but, I mean, okay. Show me the money. I, I suppose. <laughs> I suppose. Show me the money. So I have State v. Castillo Rodriguez. Now, this is an interesting one. This individual defendant here was charged with four counts of sexual assault of a child. And then, um, for some reason, I think he was released and then picked up almost immediately on an ice hold. So, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement uh, held uh, Mr. Castillo Rodriguez uh, pending removal uh, to whatever his country of origin was. So, there's that piece is important. Then, while he's being held, um, the attorney here does a great job, tries to... Um, get as much good time credit for the defendant that they can. There's a habeas corpus petition filed on behalf of the state and to revoke his bond and to bring him back so that he can start getting credit for whatever he's serving on these things. And that's done in the county court level. And then ultimately in the district court, he is convicted of two class one child abuse convictions. So uh, that's what we have for a conviction in the district court. 
Now, the um, there's another habeas petition filed in the district court basically saying, hey, ICE, I know you have a hold on this uh, individual, but we need to prosecute him, uh, bring him before, bring his body before the court, and so we can prosecute him. Now, the issue and the main issues of appeal here are um, the time for jail credit. We have 94 days is what the district court ordered and, and um, what they have outside of some of the ice hold. And then the attorney for the defendant here was advocating for 215 days because there's some interplay between when the uh, habeas petitions were filed or the habeas motions were filed or whatever you call those when they're in the uh, within the realm of the criminal case. And so whenever those habeas things were filed, um, it should be 215 days. So 215 days versus 94 days. So ultimately here, um, the Nebraska Supreme Court finds that the sentencing courts have no discretion to grant more or less credit. It is established as a matter of record. So there's nothing anybody can do except what basically is uh, you know, pretrial detention, time awaiting trial, and time awaiting sentencing. You got to go through all those here. Even defense counsel agreed, uh, technically, uh, there was 94 days uh, jail time credit here. So the um, advocate, the person who's trying to ask for more specific jail credit, has the burden of proof. I think that's an important piece to take from this is if you're going to seek to establish there should be more jail time credit, you have the burden of proof to uh, present evidence in front of the court, and it becomes a question of law as far as a standard of review is concerned, which is subject to independent review uh, through the appellate courts. So ultimately, the district court who found 94 days here was affirmed uh, on appeal here with the Nebraska Supreme Court, so 94 days credit was all that Mr. Castillo Rodriguez was given. He was maxed out on his two class one misdemeanors and so the the good time credit became a significant issue. I don't know what's going to happen. There's nothing in here about what happened as far as his uh, immigration case was concerned. But I would say lawyer kudos uh, for fighting for every day of jail credit um, to preserve uh, for pretrial detention for your client. I, I think taking this the, uh, the way they took it um, deserves a kudos, even though it ultimately uh, wasn't successful. But it was a good, uh, good discussion as far as what jail time credit should be. And a good argument to make. Yeah, absolutely. I think we're done with Supreme Court opinions, right? I think you're right. Let's get through these Nebraska uh, Court of Appeals ones. All right, on to Court of Appeals, and we start out with a published opinion. Uh, this is State v. Embry, which is an appeal uh, from a first-degree sexual assault. Uh, lots of uh, facts here. I won't dig into those very much, but um, we do get into uh, some interesting pieces and kind of practical pieces as far as uh, evidence at trial and things of that nature. Uh, the first assignment of error surrounded um, some uh, prior bad acts evidence under uh, Nebraska Revised Statute 27414, Rule 414. Um, and here there was a Rule 414 hearing. Uh, this was about uh, prior acts from the defendant and uh, incidents that had happened with him and a, an ex-girlfriend. Um, and here essentially at the 414 hearing, the judge says, okay, yes, uh, this evidence is going to come in, uh, you know, does 403 weighing and whether or not it's prejudicial and, uh, you know, is it going to be probative, all those kind of things. And here it comes in, um, but uh, the 
uh, defendant, there's not an objection uh, when this evidence goes to come in again at trial. And so uh, here, again, even though there was a prior evidentiary hearing, the appellate court tells us that, you know, you need to object again when this tries to come in at uh, trial. And since uh, trial counsel did not object uh, to this evidence and this testimony uh, coming in again at trial, the uh, appellate court says that, you know, there's no ability for us to uh, review that. And you've essentially um, waived um, the any objection you would have had uh, to that, even though there was this prior hearing, you have to object when it comes to uh, come in at trial. There then was an, an issue um, as to whether or not the uh, victim in this case should have been sequestered throughout the trial. And, um, you know, there's a there's a really good discu discussion uh, of when um, witnessed um, witnesses should be sequestered and uh, whether or not you know that's necessary. Uh, essentially, uh, here the person has to be essential if they're not going to be uh, sequestered if one party asks. And generally, uh, victims can be viewed as uh, being essential, uh, but it is a question of or a question for the. Uh, trial court, and essentially here we look at it as an abuse of discretion. Uh, court of Appeals said that there was not an abuse of discretion in this case, but if you want a good discussion as to whether or not a witness uh, should be sequestered, this you know goes into that very deep. There then was discussion regarding DNA evidence that came in, and uh, more importantly, the DNA evidence that essentially didn't come in was discussed by uh, the prosecutor and is raised as an issue of prosecutorial misconduct um, on, uh, on appeal. Um, and here, uh, the Court of Appeals again says that this uh, was not preserved, um, and the standard for preserving um, an issue of prosecutorial misconduct at the trial level is that an objection made during closing arguments without a motion for mistrial does not preserve an error resulting from prosecutor's remarks for appellate review. So it's not enough that you object to whatever the prosecutor is saying. You also must ask for a uh, mistrial at that period in time in order to uh, preserve that for appellate review. And so just again, another one of those uh, practice notes, it's not enough just to object, you have to um, also ask for that mistrial at the time um, in order to preserve that. Um, but otherwise, they address those issues uh, fairly thoroughly. So if you have anything um, that might hit one of those areas, very helpful case for that. Uh, but it was affirmed. And uh, we moved on from there. Uh, question. So yes. the uh, at closing arguments, the prosecutor brought up DNA evidence that was excluded? Yeah, essentially. They essentially um, made a leap. There was some inconclusive DNA evidence, and so it had kind of been let in on a limited basis, oh. and the prosecutor essentially exceeded, uh, probably exceeded what um, it had been let in for or the limited basis that it had been let in to. Uh, but again, uh, and the district court allowed the prosecutor to go on uh, over the defense's objection. So, and honestly, I would have thought at that point it would have been preserved too. Uh, but the court of appeal says no, or our appellate courts say no, um, that's not enough. You also have to ask for a mistrial at that point for it to be preserved. Crazy. All right. Uh, State v. Bolden. Uh, we have here a criminal defendant case that was uh, affirmed on appeal. Gentleman here, defendant was convicted of uh, after pleading no contest to one count of second degree murder and sentenced to 40 to 50 years imprisonment. There was uh, an issue regarding the sufficiency of the factual basis. 
but unlike what we heard about last week, as far as legal conclusions, the factual basis can be waived. So you can waive that by not objecting to a factual basis and uh, or the adequacy of the factual basis. I should note here that the appellate counsel was different than the trial counsel. So there were claims of ineffective assistance of counsel that you have to make on direct appeal in order to preserve those for later um, later review. So there was issues regarding the sufficiency of the factual basis, and then there was a motion to withdraw the plea because the defendant uh, misunderstood the minimum term through an assumption. Uh, basically, the trial counsel said, hey, if you plead to this, you're going to get 10 years. And he, in his head, he thought it was five years because he was you know, going by half uh, in his head. So that was an erroneous assumption on the defendant's part. And then he was not receiving his medication properly during uh, the plea hearing and prior to the plea hearing. So that should be grounds uh, for withdrawing the plea. And there's a good discussion about what, you know, the standards are to withdraw a plea. So that would be relevant. And then it gets into the ineffective assistance of counsel claims. And there's a good discussion of those issues. Um, Basically, it boils down to the defendant here was claiming that a door was shut and he shot the door. And that's when the individual was, uh, you know, harmed. But then that's different than the factual basis. So there's discussion there re- regarding what issues should have been raised and what material should have been investigated and who should have been talked to on the trial court level on behalf of trial court's counsel. But ultimately, everything was affirmed, including his sentence of 40 to 50 years for the second degree murder plea. Okay. The next case that we come to is uh, Volkman versus Barada. Uh, this is a district court appeal um, with a number of factors, mainly uh, custody, child support, um, all the things in that nature. Uh, very fact intensive, so lots of facts in this opinion. Um, the one area that I think is kind of interesting that it hits on is um, when a district court should uh, have should grant a name change because here one party was requesting a name change. Um, it lists out a set of factors, which there's a ton of factors. Essentially, there's uh, 10 um, factors that are a non-exhaustive list. And so then uh, the opinion goes on to say that there's also other important factors uh, to be included in this, but that is also a very uh, fact-intensive determination that then um, is pretty much left to the discretion of the uh, court. Uh, here there was pretty limited um, testimony and pretty limited evidence put on as to why uh, the party seeking the name change believed that it was necessary or should happen. Um, and so the court of appeals on this says because there was minimal evidence uh, produced in support of the name change, um, you know, we, we um, find that the person uh, had failed to meet uh, the burden of proof necessary. And so here, again, if you have something that, you know, has a name change, it might be uh, valuable one to go look at all these set of factors and then look at, you know, being able to put on the evidence and, and how you're going to put on the necessary evidence to show uh, that, um, there should be a name change and at least shift that burden um, to uh, demonstrate that a name change is necessary um, and that is in the uh, be- child's best interest. But other than that, uh, fairly straightforward uh, custody and child support opinion. All right. I have in, in, in interest of Natalia R. and O'Shea R. and State v. Shane R. Uh, these are two consolidated appeals. Regarding a temper, uh, termination of parental rights, which was ultimately affirmed, as you can imagine, these uh, termination of parental rights cases are very fact-heavy, 
and they found the statutory grounds existed to terminate parental rights and that the best interests of the children involved termination of the parental rights, and they found those by clear and convincing evidence. So it was affirmed. Affirmed. <laughs> That's a quick one. That was a quick one. Um, final case we have is in re interest of affinity R. This is an appeal uh, from a termination of parental rights. Uh, essentially, there was a divorce proceeding. Um, parents are divorced, and then eventually uh, mother requests a change in parenting time and eventually termination of uh, the father's parental rights. And so the case is transferred to uh, from the Lincoln County District Court to the Lincoln County uh, County Court in order to proceed on that termination of parental rights. Um, again, fairly uh, straightforward as far as the uh, factors for termination and then the best interest of the child. The one thing that I will note is um, that on appeal, the mother argues that the father should not have been entitled to appointment of counsel on the termination of parental rights. Um, but here the, the Court of Appeals addresses that uh, by saying whenever a termination of parental rights is placed at issue, the court shall transfer jurisdiction to a juvenile court established pursuant to the Nebraska Juvenile Code. And so uh, once that transfer happens, then everything is ruled by the Nebraska Juvenile Code. And since they, they have jurisdiction on proceedings for termination of parental rights, um, all the rights that are entitled to you um, exist at that point in time. And so if you're unable to afford uh, counsel, you are entitled to counsel. So even if it originates from a district court case, once it's sent down and it's in a termination proceeding, you're entitled to counsel on a uh, termination of parental rights. And so that right does not change and you still are um, indeed entitled to uh, counsel um, on that termination of parental rights proceeding. Is that it? I think that's it. Hey, that's today. Look at us. Um, want to remind everybody go back to episode one for the disclaimer of you know what we're not here to do and what we're here to do and also hit us up hit us up in the gmail uh point to law review at gmail.com right uh yes point to law review at gmail.com uh continue to uh follow us feel free to uh also send us messages on twitter or uh facebook engage with us on instagram i think we're on all the linkedin we're on all of the i'm very uh, active social, on linkedin very active on linkedin <laughs> um, i am actually i i gave up other, other social media for lent uh, except i'm permitting myself linkedin which is <laughs> insanely lame it's a great <laughs> social media platform uh, i mean i'm sure it's fine but wow uh i am depriving myself <laughs> <laughs> anyway, going down to the old LinkedIn well to yes. see what's going on in the world. Anyway, uh, that's it for another week. This is Point to Learn Review. I'm John Brandt. And I am Carson Messersmith. And uh, we'll be back next week. Thank you. Thanks, everybody.